Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Marianne Azevedo. This is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, we're talking to Mark Goldberg, partner at Index Ventures since 2015. He's invested and sits on the boards of a number of financial services companies such as Plaid, Persona, Lithic, Cocoon, and Pilot. Mark, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, no, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk about a few things, including the party that was 2021, the hangover that was 2022. And then we'd love to get your thoughts on what's ahead for 2023, including going over some predictions you have. One in particular regarding Twitter that I know caused a bit of a stir on Twitter. Very meta. But yeah, that's That's just one of several. So currently, you're the fintech lead at Index Ventures. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I've been at Index since 2015 and focused on fintech, which... um, has been a a really interesting time to be investing in this category. We've seen a lot of waves and yeah, it's an exciting time to be doing fintech. A lot has happened since 2015. I mean, you've really seen the industry just evolve in a major way, right? I mean, did you expect it to accelerate like this? I did not expect it to be moving this quickly in the direction of digitization. I actually think the pandemic accelerated things by five plus years. So at least, right? That's it. We have a long way to go, Marianne. I think there's <laughs> much more to do as I'm sure we'll get to in this podcast. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just amazing the level of innovation in this category. Yeah, I think the last time that we talked, one of the things that you shared with me that I found really interesting is that you were you were super bullish about early stage consumer fintech, which I know not everybody is feeling so optimistic. Tell me more about like, why are you so pumped about this space where so many others seem to have a lot of concerns? So I think there are a lot of valid concerns around consumer finance. I think the the biggest knock you hear is these companies aren't going to make money. They're not differentiated. I totally disagree with that. I think that what's going on is consumer finance has been oversold and people have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I think if you take a step back from where banks are today, there's $5 trillion in market cap. Most of that is held by institutions that were started 100 years ago. And the idea that people are going to continue to bank like they did in the early 20th century, to me, feels inconsistent with the consumer expectations we have today. So I think one of the driving factors of consumer finance is this push towards an an expectation of digitally native, delightful products. And the banks have let us down in that regard. I think they've taken customers for granted and they've left the door open to a massive market. So I think you can hold two things to be true. One is that there was too much you know, hype in the cycle in 2021. Um, and some of the valuations of consumer finance did not make sense. But on the other, that if you were a buy and holder of that category of companies for the next 10 years, you do very, very well. And so the reason I'm excited about it is if we can identify those companies while, particularly while they're not in favor in the market, um, I think there's going to be tremendous opportunities. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I mean, one trend that I've been paying attention to is the rise of the very niche neobank where they're targeting like very specific demographics. And I saw a lot of those pop up earlier on in the pandemic. And it's been a little while since I've heard from many, although I did get a pitch from one that was focused on doctors only, which was kind of new to me. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on on that? Like, do you see that sort of niche focus doing well or or does it depend on what kind of niche focus? So I think if we were going to define a headline for fintech in 2023, 
It's that this is the Noah's Ark year of fintech. And by that, I mean that from, you know, Tom Levero at IVP talked about a mass extinction event for startups. I, I don't, I'm not sure I feel that, like that is the appropriate phrase, but there's going to be a massive consolidation. And I think we're likely going to see two winners emerge per category. One or two. Maybe two is optimistic. Maybe it's just one. I just, I think Noah had two on the boat per species. So I think to go back to neobanks, I think what we're going to see is just a real sorting of business models that had sustainable long-term value to consumers and those that didn't and and really never should have survived as long as they did. Mm -hmm. So I think we are going to see massive consolidation across categories. I think that will also play out in neobanks. The one nuance I would introduce to consumer finance into neobanks is, and we were talking about, I've been investing here at Index since 2015. The first generation of fintech consumer winners really use product as a wedge to get massive penetration and distribution with customer bases. You think about Robinhood with free trading, if you think about what SoFi did with student loans. But as the infrastructure has developed so much in the fintech economy with Plaid, with Stripe, with so many of the providers of picks and shovels, what it's done is it's actually made it much easier to get these products off the ground. And I think product mode is not something we're likely going to see. So where does that leave consumer finance? I actually think there's a brand opportunity that creates the ability to market to more niche demographics. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've written a lot about Cash App, which is, we're not investors. I just think very highly of company and what they've done. And they've done a tremendous job marketing to you know young 20-year-olds who I think would do very well in uh, the sort of bars and nightclubs that I would look like a dinosaur at. And the idea that you would have demographic winners or certainly brands that could support that kind of niche targeting makes sense to me. But it's only going to be if those businesses are sustainable. And I think the reason you have probably haven't heard a lot of pitches is because a lot of those companies are having hard times. Yeah, yeah, probably so. And that you bring up two different things that I wanted to talk about. So first, this fusion of fintech and culture, I think is very interesting that you you raised the point about Cash App and clothing store and the block ecosystem. So like, let's talk a little bit more about what are some other examples of this fusion of fintech and culture that exist? And how do you think that's benefiting the industry? Yeah, my first job out of college was at Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley, I think the reason why customers go to Morgan Stanley or Wells Fargo or Bank of America, the brand that those businesses have created is stability. The idea is you would walk into one of those banks and you would see the marble pillars in the lobby and you would think, my money is going to be safe here. And that's the brand that was cultivated really really over a century. Where the opportunity now is, is almost safety as an afterthought and more of a brand identity as a cultural indicator of your own preferences and values. So I think we're seeing that in all sorts of ways. I mean, the most interesting ways were really in the media. Um, and I, I don't mean to harp too much on Cash App, but I've just been so impressed by what they've done. I mean, Cash App is quoted in top 40 radio all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's like 400 references to Cash App in pop music today. And the idea that an artist would be rapping about the way that they move money peer-to-peer between friends, if you had told me that when I started doing this job in 2015, I would have said you were crazy. I was wrong. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity that smart brands are capitalizing on is they're saying the red herring is to go after the the staid marble walled context of safety and to say this is this is as much a part of you as your clothing is as your car is as the community you choose to live in and spend time with 
And I think that is a, a shift in the way people are looking at applications of finance that is going to define the next generation of fintech companies. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think definitely this younger generation, their mindset is is very different when like when they look at, say, and this is no offense to these institutions, but like credit unions or traditional banks. And they're like, why would we like, no, <laughs> no. You don't speak to me. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do agree with you there. Um, another thing you brought up that I think is very interesting was consolidation. You're expecting, predicting, I think, that we're going to see more of it. When the year started, I felt like I was getting a lot of pitches for M&A deals. Like there was a flurry of them. And I was like, Mark was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, and I think you had mentioned like you in particular, you, you see that happening with players in the same space that are both like have like solid products, maybe decent market share, but who realize, you know what, we can, we can really be a force if we team up. Do you still feel that way? Do you expect we're going to see more of these kinds of deals this year? I absolutely do. And uh, you're kind to say I got it right because I'm sure I've gotten more wrong than right. But it does seem like the M&A pace is picking up. I think the reasons that are driving the M&A are so many companies are going to look at the future path and say going independent no longer makes sense in the environment we're in today. The evolution of my thinking has changed a bit since we last spoke. And that's, I fear that many companies that we're using M&A as a backup plan, are going to realize that it doesn't exist. And that M&A is a polite way of saying they're going to cease to exist as a business. M&A takes a tremendous amount of time and money to affect with any leverage. The rule of thumb for me is if you have less than mm-hmm. nine months of cash to operate your business, you've lost a significant amount of the leverage to go out and talk to potential buyers to create the relationships Alex Rampell had a great thread on Twitter a few months back where he he said businesses are bought, not sold. And I completely agree with that. The way that I've seen M&A over the last 15 years has always been a long dance with suitors and not a, a short sale. And when it is that sense of, you know, I think there are unfortunately founders that don't appreciate that and are likely thinking, oh, if I can't get a fundraise done, I'm going to sell the company and are going to realize they've lost the leverage to do that. And, and so, I, well... I continue to believe we're going to see a lot of consolidation. I think, unfortunately, we're also going to see a lot of companies just just cease to exist. Yeah, for sure. I I agree with you because, you know, there are companies running out of runway, quite frankly. And, you know, last year there was a lot of talk about down rounds and we're seeing more of them or extensions or flat rounds. And I talked to Hans at GGV who said, hey, a down round's better than than dying out, yep. right? Like dying completely. Um, so, but to your point though, I mean, there are some companies that are going to struggle to even raise a down round or, and then may not be attractive to another company to merge with. So unfortunately, I, I agree. I think we're going to see some weeding out here. There was just too much happening in 2021, way too many companies being funded. And it's almost like a survival of the fittest Definitely. going on right now. I, right? I, I think you I think you nailed the tagline. I think it's it's absolutely survival of the fittest. Yeah. Which is so different. I mean, if you go back even 12 months ago, it was still it's hard to put ourselves in the mindset of growth, 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 which was really even February of 2022, that was still the mindset. And the pendulum has entirely reverted to the other side of quality. And that right. that is how businesses will survive. That's how they'll be one of the seats on on the boat that comes to rescue the, the consolidators and the board conversations have changed. The way companies are operating has changed. It's surprised me how quickly we've gone from one environment to the other. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Like we all knew it was coming. We could see it. We're like, this is not sustainable. There's no way we can continue at this rate. 
But it when it turned, it really turned sharply. And it's been a very dramatic shift for sure. I think that this raises another question to me. When we talk about the excesses of 2021, there were definitely some negative impacts, right? I think there were founders and investors alike who got caught up in that frenzy. And there was FOMO of like, oh, we've got we've to invest. We've got to invest. This could be the next best thing. And you even had told me that you were kind of relieved that it wasn't so like, oh, gosh, I have 24 hours. Was it 24 hours or something like to yeah. make a decision? Maybe 48 if we got lucky, but yeah. very quick decisions. That's insane. So from that perspective, I'm actually kind of relieved, you know, we're not going through that anymore. But at the same time, like, we're still feeling the effects of that sort of behavior and mindset. Would you agree? Like, what kind of impact has that had on the startup investing world? Well, I I think it's had a dramatic effect. So I think that within companies, the mind shift has swiftly pivoted to, you know, how do we not hit a certain growth target, but how do we survive the environment? And this focus on quality, if I had to put it to one metric right now, if uh, in the bull market was, you know, what's your growth year over year? Today, it's what's your burn ratio? How much money are you spending relative to how much money you're growing your top line in revenue? And if that ratio doesn't make sense, the business is going to have challenges. So it's people looking at both sides of that equation. They're looking at their expense base and saying, how can I control costs? I think that and this is, I feel like we're, we're heading in a doom and gloom direction, but I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm an optimist. There's so many exciting things happening. But on the doom and gloom point, the last thing I'll say is I think we're going to start seeing not 10% layoffs. We're going to see 50% layoffs in the coming mm-hmm. months. And that's something where I think a lot of companies are, are going to realize they didn't cut as deeply as they needed to in the last few months and are going to be mm-hmm. coming back, not with a knife, but with an axe. And I think that's around the corner. Ouch. That's scary, right? Like, I mean, it's no fun to hear. And my heart goes out to all the people impacted by these layoffs. I think, you know, there have been some companies that didn't go crazy, didn't overhire and have so far avoided having to lay folks off. But um, clearly many, many, many others, including very highly valued companies that are still going through this right now. What lessons do you think startups that are trying to build today can take from all that? Well, I think it's an orientation around what does success look like? And success looks in the bull market like, are you a good fundraiser? Can you go raise money every six months and double your valuation? And there are a lot of founders that were excellent fundraisers that thrived in an environment that oriented towards success in that direction that are realizing it's actually very difficult to build a business. And so I think the founders that can take away the lesson that if you can really focus on to me, hiring the best people, number one priority is the CEO. Number two, building the best product, build a 10x product that's beating everybody else. You are going to win in the long term. And maybe, you know, the hard lesson we're realizing now is capitalize the company. Make sure you have the runway to be able to go see those things through. And I think those are things that got lost a bit in the bull market. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, but what about with a hiring strategy? Like, how do you handle that going forward? Like wanting to hire enough that you can grow and build, but like not go overboard. It's There seems like there's a fine line. There is a fine line. I think that the companies that are, are struggling now that where we're seeing big layoffs, I think hiring became a vanity metric. Yeah. Hiring was more about, hey, let's hit this number because we can, because we can afford to, because it shows that we're a strong company. When the reality is, you know, you could have done more with less. And that just, that, I think that mindset was problematic. Mm-hmm. To me, my entire investment philosophy is if you can follow the best people into companies, a basket of those businesses are going to do extremely well. And so less is more. If you can find the absolute best engineers, the absolute smartest people working inside of your business and track them to your company, you're going to do well. You don't need that many people. You just need the best. 
So I think it's more the sense of quality over you know, this uh, month over month growth and headcount, which mm-hmm. really was a vanity metric. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was always impressed with the lean and me mentality when I would talk to founders, when they would tell me like they had a certain amount of revenue, but with a really small team to me was really impressive, more impressive than, you know, hearing that same number from another company with like three times the staff. Let's move on to 2023. Yeah. And some of those predictions you made, one of them, a hot topic these days is generative AI. And you're predicting that it will upend the $1 trillion wealth management industry. Why? I think, so we've been investing in AI for 25 years at Index and a lot in the last five years. So it's amazing to see AI really step into the zeitgeist in a way that is really fun for us, having been in kind of natives in this category for a long time. I think the sort of business models that will be most disrupted by AI are the ones where there's a lot of manual labor that can be automated away. One of the business models we've really enjoyed getting behind and seen success with at Index is what I would call tech-enabled services models. So we've done this in bookkeeping, accounting, real estate, insurance, security, where you take a, a process. I'll give you an example of a company, and I'll use a, use a specific name, a company like Pilot. Pilot does bookkeeping for startups, accounting and bookkeeping for startups. Now, that, that market today is it's actually one in 100 Americans is a bookkeeper or an accountant. It's like if you if you go to a main street, you'll see a liquor store, a post office, and like a shingle hanging for an accountant. And that's an extremely fragmented industry. And yet every business in the world needs to do their taxes to understand if they owe the government money, they've made a profit. And yet nobody has thought to bring technology or nobody's been able to bring technology into that because it's a very complicated problem. You do have structured data yeah. coming in in the sense of you know, hey, QuickBooks Online has, you know, and your Mercury or Brex bank account can now give you structured input and structured output in terms of financial statements. But the kind of the mess of how that actually works is quite complicated. And so the pilot business model has been, let's automate as much of that as we can, but wrap a human being around it. So if you are the customer, you don't deal with a robot, you deal with a support agent who is you know, supercharged by the technology to be able to give them kind of much more leverage on their time. And so to specifically answer the question around wealth management, what is wealth? I mean, for people that are not familiar with wealth management, most people are, I mean, 60% of the country, you know, is struggling to just meet expenses. But for the fortunate people that actually are starting to accrue some savings, there's a real question of where do you put the money? Do you put it into a checking account? Do you put it into the stock market? Do you put it into (laughs) NFTs? I would not suggest the latter. Neither would I. I have to tell you, I've never been like very bullish about NFTs, but you don't know. And if you are not a professional investor, it's a hard question. And it would make sense to, you know, pay someone a small fee to help give you advice on the sense. The kind of the secret of the industry, though, is the advice is, is pretty common sense. It's something where a lot of the job of a wealth manager is just to, to kind of be there for you and to provide some emotional support, not to make bad decisions. So the biggest mistake people make in wealth management is taking their money out of the stock market when it goes down. Yeah, you know, panicking. But if I told you that and you saw your, your balance uh, dropping every month, you might panic anyway and say, I'm out, get me out. And so I think these sort of industries where there's a lot of back and forth between a human and a human. And a lot of that can be kind of automated through some of the functionality we're seeing in ChatGPT. Other thing that I think is really interesting about wealth management, the dream I have had since I got to index to do fintech was this concept of self-driving money. This sense that for every dollar that came in through your paycheck into your bank account, it could be intelligently routed to pay off expenses and then maybe pay off some credit card debt 
then maybe pay off your student loans, and then what? And then go into a high-yield savings account, and then go into a, you know, a corporate bond index. I don't know. But the idea that you wouldn't have to think about it, that the money would just move behind the scenes, has been a dream that I've had for a long time. And it has not been realized. There was a generation of companies that tried to do pieces of this, but without the full picture, really struggled. And I think the generative AI can tie all these pieces together and potentially unlock what could be one of the more interesting opportunities to just take money out of the equation for people mm -hmm. who really don't want to have to think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I mean, that's like the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> right? That's the dream. That's the dream. The dream of money is not to think about money. It just happens. Oh my gosh, that's the dream to get to that point, right? Another prediction you made has to do with the IPO market, which we haven't really touched on yet. And your belief is that Stripe will reopen the IPO market, but at half the valuation of its last private round. So now we know that it's been rumored or been reports that it's raising at about a 55 to $60 billion valuation. It was valued at $95 billion. I don't, I mean, if we're talking half, you're talking about 45. So you do think it's, do you think it's going to raise and go public or one or the other or what? So I think first off, stepping back, I think Stripe is a fantastic business. I think Stripe is the bellwether in the industry in terms of fintech for the opportunity. Stripe could be a trillion dollar business if we were having this conversation 10 years from now. I think they have an enormous market. They have some of the smartest people in tech working there and they have a real platform. They started with payments, but you know, there's options in 15 directions that you can build from there. And I won't go into all of it. So I'm very bullish on where this company goes. I think that it should be a public company. And I think the reality is it probably should already be a public company. Yeah. I feel like it sort of missed the windows. Not missed the window, but I feel like had it gone public a couple of years back, that might have been better timing for them. Hindsight's 2020. If I knew what I knew today in 2020 or 2021, I might have made some different decisions as well. Right, of course. But it's a big business. And some of the discipline of the public markets could have been very healthy for the company. I mean, I saw stats that Stripe grew its headcount by 400% since the beginning of the pandemic where one of its large public comps, Adyen, in the public markets, grew its headcount by, I think, 75%. And, you know, that sort of growth, I think, may or may not have happened as a public company, but for Stripe to really unlock the dream that it has to be the financial platform, I think it will better realize that goal as a public company. And it is one of the very few bellwether companies that could actually have access to public market capital this year. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not close enough to the company to tell you what they will do. But if I were in their shoes, I would be looking hard at taking the hit at saying, I'll, you know, I'll join the public markets, even if it's at the valuation that I didn't want to be able to start the journey as a public company. So if that happens, you think does that like the floodgates will open and other companies are going to like not be so scared anymore of going public or, or I what? do. I mean, I think two things would happen. I think one is regardless of whether they take private money or they decide to go public at a reduced valuation, I think normalizing a down round from a bellwether name like Stripe will have a dramatic impact on the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, we saw this last year. Right. You know, in 2021, if you had told me this company is raising a flat round, I would have said red flags everywhere. What's going on? Why would they possibly <laughs> take money at the same valuation they raised at a year ago? By December of last year, I would have said this is totally normal. Right. And I think we're in that process of normalization for down rounds. Mm -hmm. And there are many companies that raised money in 2021 at the peak of the market that I think will benefit from raising capital at clean terms, at reduced valuations, clearly communicating that to investors, to stakeholders, to employees, and moving forward. Stripe is the sort of brand name that could normalize it for the entire environment. I mean, I agree. Like I saw a headline about Borrow Bank supposedly raising at a 
quote unquote significant down round. And I was like, well, I mean, isn't every round these days a significant down round? Like it's very rare that you find a company that's actually increasing its valuation. Or maybe it's not as rare as, as we make it seem to be, but I feel like it's not so uncommon anymore to be raising a down round. So I feel like it's not the same kind of headline impact that it was. Definitely not like a year ago. Really quick, I want to move on because I know we don't have too much more time. But one of your predictions was that Twitter will become a fintech. And I know that raised some bit of a stir on Twitter. I find it interesting. I know that it's trying to get into payments or has been working on that. And I think your words were that fintech could be the lifeline that rescues the company. Tell me more about that. So... Twitter, this, first off, this is my moonshot prediction. And sometimes it's fun just to think about the what ifs. What do we know about Twitter? We know they need a Hail Mary. We know that the debt burden on this company from becoming a private business is significant. We know that they're going to have to be creative in order to get themselves out of the situation that they're in. And I think that that is creating opportunities for them to be really creative in the, in the directions they go. To me, it's always surprised me that even though Twitter is one of the largest creator platforms in the world, the monetization happens outside of Twitter. And the idea that Twitter would bring that back in-house makes a lot of sense to me. At the same time, you've got a, a team of executives there with tremendous payment expertise that have already signaled publicly of, of some of these ambitions. And I would not be surprised if we start to see them move in that direction, starting from the creators um, and creator monetization paths. I mean, they've signaled that could be the wedge into wallets, into peer-to-peer -peer payments, you know, if you look at the full stack of what a PayPal provides today, potentially creator payouts could become a gateway into many other things. That's not what I'm predicting, but I do think that they could make significant headway in a fintech direction. And, you know, what we know is I'm not sure the subscription business is going to be enough to carry the load from a revenue standpoint. I, yeah, I have to agree with you. I definitely have to agree with you there, especially the way it's kind of all been brought about as of late. Before we end on predictions, is there anything else that you really just really want to talk about in terms of what you think is going to happen next, either in the early stage or late stage market this year? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I think that the companies that put their head down, that focus on building the best products, the opportunity in financial services is tremendous. And as a fintech investor, it's probably the most exciting time I've had here because the game of investing has, if, if this was a video game, has gone from easy mode to expert mode in about six months. And by that, I mean, you have to develop conviction. You have to see things that aren't obvious. And there are great teams building right now. And a landscape, again, dominated by companies that were you know, built over 100 years ago. So I think there's tremendous opportunity. And well, I think likely the headlines I'll be reading from you, Marianne, are more pain in the ecosystem over the coming months. I think there are very green pastures on the other side of it. Yeah, I'm encouraged by some things. Like, for example, I've been taking a look at fintechs that are hiring and was pleasantly surprised that there are more of them out there than one might expect, given the current environment. All right, let's 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 move into the lightning round. I want, to, I want to hear a little bit more about you, Mark, as a person, and just also kind of to get your fun thoughts here. When you think about fintech founders right now, what is the number one thing that you would advise them to be doing at this time? The number one thing I look for in a fintech founder is grit. I mean, fintech founders, like all founders, I have yet to see a business that has straight line success. And I, I think in this environment, a lot of folks will empathize with that notion. And the people that build the businesses that we see as iconic generational companies are the ones that get up after taking some of the hits. And so I'm not sure that's something you can just wake up one day and say, I'm going to have grit today. But those are the, when, if you pattern match the one attribute that we see 
correlating with success in the long term, it's great. And that's for fintech founders, but it's really for everyone. Yeah, I could see that. Let's talk about advice. What's the best advice you've ever received? And then what's the worst? Oh my gosh, that's a really good question. The best advice I received was to be authentic. And I think that that's something that really has resonated with me for many, many years. I think this is a job and probably many jobs are like this where, you know, you can kind of go with the wind, but sometimes it's better just to tell people, even if it's not what they want to hear. And, you know, as long as you have kind of that North compass, I think that served me very well. The worst advice, I've gotten so much bad advice over the years. <laughs> uh, you know what, Marianne, I'm going to have to take a rain check on that one. I can't come up with anything on the spot, but I w- I've gotten a lot of bad advice and I'll come back with some of it for you. Uh, yeah, that well, that's too bad to hear. But yeah, agree that your authenticity certainly shines through and it's very refreshing. Last question for you. What would you be doing if you weren't a VC? This is going to sound a little out there, but if I wasn't a VC, I've thought a lot about being a park ranger. I'm a huge fan of the national park system. I grew up in Connecticut, but one of the reasons I moved to California is I love being in the outdoors. And I think that at the end of the day, when all the investing is behind me, the idea of spending a lot more time in nature sounds very nice sitting here from my office in San Francisco. Oh, I love I love that. At least you are close to so much nature and so much natural beauty where you are. So You've got some great natural beauty in your backyard too. Yeah, not bad. It's not bad at all. Well, Mark, this has been awesome. Really, really enjoyed talking with you as always. Very grateful for you coming on the show. How can people find you online? What are your social media handles? I'll, I'll give you my Twitter handle. Follow me online at Mark underscore Goldberg underscore Thanks again, Mark. That was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. For everyone else, I'll be back with Alex and Becca on Friday. Natasha's away for a summit in LA, but she'll be back in the Wednesday seat next week. Talk to you soon. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.